the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us again. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That's where you can get podcasts of the show. You can also get podcasts iTunes and Spotify. Uh, online on social media at Dan Prof Show, both on Twitter and Facebook, also at Dan Prof on Twitter and uh, at Prof Dan, the reverse, on Instagram. Uh, we start today sort of where we left off on last night's show, which is talking about um, the optimism surrounding the positive news related to clinical trials of Gilead's potential antiviral therapy for COVID 19 that would be remdesivir as well as uh, the prospect that uh, a vaccine may not be 12 to 18 months in the offing, at least according to Oxford University researchers who are uh, beginning clinical trials on their potential vaccine. Well, uh, last night, you'll remember, we talked to uh, Dr. Henry Miller, who is a microbiologist in addition to a medical doctor, and he's the former, the founding director, actually, of the uh, Office of Biotechnology at the FDA, and he just wanted us to pump the brakes a little bit on expectations on the vaccine front, uh, saying this. The first successful rotavirus vaccine, rotavirus causes gastroenteritis in, in infants. Uh, that was tested on 72,000 healthy infants. And the first human papilloma virus vaccine, Gardasil, uh, on 24,000 patients, 24,000 subjects. And the newest shingles vaccine, Shingrix, on 29,000 subjects. So that gives you a flavor for what the uh, what the bar is, what what the uh, extent is to really judge safety and efficacy for modern vaccines. And the prospect. So the prospect, you know, knowing you have to test that many people uh, for safety reasons. And he gave other examples of uh, of. Uh, terrible outcomes in clinical trials when you're testing thousands and thousands of people. This is one you want to know before you market it to bil- you know, millions and perhaps billions of people. Uh, so what Oxford University was suggesting uh, coming to market by September? I, I think that's a pipe dream. I don't see the how that's possible. Uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be optimistic about the prospect of a vaccine at some point. Dr. Miller was clear to point out. It's just about tempering our expectations on time because of the amount of testing required and remembering that what's happening at Oxford right now, the stage they're at, 550 in the experimental group, 550 people in the placebo group. So 1,100 people. And as you heard him discuss in modern times with vaccine trials, you're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Takes time, which is the uh, perfect segue for our uh, Uh, featured guest on this program. Martin Kulldorff is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. 
and he has uh, written a piece at uh, Spiked Online, which sort of uh, flies right off of what Dr. Miller was saying about the time horizon for a vaccine, that maybe we're starting, we're asking the wrong questions, and we're essentially ignoring the real choice that we have to make in the moment. Uh, Martin Kaldorf, thanks so much for joining us, Professor. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Um, first of all, before we get to your perspective, is do you share uh, Dr. Miller's view of uh, time horizon for a vaccine? Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable uh, statement that he said. And, uh, of course, we don't know, but uh, we should be optimistic and try hard to get a new vaccine, but uh, it might take time. And, and so you say, uh, you write in the spiked online piece I referenced, the choice we face is stark. One option is to maintain general lockdown for an unknown amount of time. The, op- the second option is to minimize the number of deaths until herd immunity is achieved through natural infection, meaning to begin opening up in a phased, responsible way with some populations more uh, uh, enabled than others. So it's just sort of develop those two options uh, before us in terms of what policymakers should be thinking about. Well, the key thing with COVID-19 is that, I mean, there's many things we don't know about COVID-19, but one thing that we do know is that the risk of death is very, very different by age. So people in their 70s and 80s and even in their 60s, that they are at high risk of death if they are exposed to the virus. While people like children or um, uh, people in their 20s or 30s, they have very, very low risk. So... uh, Uh, If we want to minimize the number of deaths to this terrible uh, pandemic, it's important that we do a better job protecting people that are older in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. While we don't have to be as strict with uh, younger people, everybody should do sort of general uh, cautions like washing hands and not shaking people's hands. But... uh, we don't have to go to extreme measures for younger people. Uh, and sooner or later, we're going to reach herd immunity, which means that um, it means that enough people have immunity uh, so that the disease stops spreading, even though some people don't. And uh, we're going to reach that either through a vaccine or through natural infections. And uh, uh, if we do it through natural infections, there are a certain proportion of the population that will uh, not be exposed. And it's important that uh, among those, there are, there are older people, because that's how we protect them. And then once we have herd immunity, uh, they will be protected by herd immunity. Uh, so if it, you want to minimize the number of... Yeah. yeah so, so, I mean, you, you, you use this term, which I, I like, um, sort of flying off the uh, anti-vaxxers moniker, uh, anti-herders. Uh, the anti-herders and that mentality. Uh, you're sort of describing it, but uh, uh, provide more detail. The anti-herders mentality. Who are you talking about when you use the term anti-herders, and what's the problem with their thinking on the topic? Well, there are some people who think herd immunity is, becomes sort of almost a bad word, and uh, who think of it as a strategy of either we pursue herd immunity or not rather than a scientific fact. Every epidemiologist would say that herd immunity is something that exists. And since I think we will get there uh, sooner or later anyhow, uh, if you do too much of a lockdown, you have to postpone that process. So the important is not whether you do sort of a complete lockdown or not. The important is that in that process, 
towards herd immunity, we need to protect those who are most at risk, which are the older people. And if you deny the existence of herd immunity, that that will eventually come, that means that uh, there's no reason to protect one person more than the other, uh, but that will lead to more death because if you if you don't protect the older people, more people will death will die than if you uh, uh, then if you uh, more people will die if you sort of do the same protection for everybody. Uh, it, uh, sort of remarkable statements coming from the World Health Organization. Uh, Dr. Mike Ryan, their top emergencies expert, saying yesterday there are lessons to be learned from Sweden. That uh, Sweden may be a model for countries going forward. Uh, I think if we are to reach a new normal, he said, Sweden represents a model if we wish to get to get back to a society in which we don't have lockdowns. So on the one hand, uh, they were previously praising China for a draconian lockdown uh, after the virus uh, broke out in Wuhan. And now they're praising Sweden, which has never locked down, has sort of taken the herd immunity approach that you're describing. Yeah, I think Sweden is the the country that has done most in terms of um, doing an age-specific countermeasures. So they are trying to protect uh, old people. They could have done even better, but they have done a pretty good job at it. Uh, but schools, elementary schools, have been open. So they have not uh, closed down all of society, and restaurants are open, so young people can go there while most of the old people are voluntarily staying away because they know they are at high risk. And... Uh, uh, even though schools have been open in Sweden, I looked a couple of days ago, and there still has not been a single death among children in Sweden under the age of 20. So it doesn't put uh, children in danger. Uh, and they are uh, building up towards herd immunity. So probably Stockholm will be the first place to reach herd immunity for COVID-19. And so, so do you, do, you, do you suspect that maybe Sweden, the Sweden model from beginning to end may turn out, I mean, I know this is a bit of an imponderable, but it's going may turn out to be the best model or certainly uh, just as good as many countries who went the lockdown route immediately. So my guess is that it would be a better model because they did it I specifically. They protected the older people while younger people uh, have been building up immunity. Uh, and we... then as soon as there is enough immunity, so you get herd immunity, which probably will happen in Stockholm maybe in a month or two, then that will protect also the older people. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Martin Kuldorf, I want to uh, talk about uh, the, uh, the guidelines for reopening that have been promulgated by the federal government and uh, are being uh, implemented to varying degrees by the states who have begun reopening. More with uh, Harvard Medical Professor Martin Kuldorf right after this. So keep on rocking me, baby. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Yesterday, President Trump, after a meeting with uh, industry leaders, uh, had uh, this to say about uh, the country reopening, not just the country reopening, But the country getting back to how it interacted, how people interacted in America prior to the COVID-19 outbreak and using uh, Alabama LSU football game as an example of what he's talking about. 
If I watch Alabama play LSU, I don't want to see 20,000 people instead of 120,000 people. We want it to be the way it was. Now, we've got to wait till it's gone, and it will be gone. And we've done a lot to get rid of it. Uh, but we, we want to open our country. The people want this country open. We're talking to Harvard medical professor Martin Kaldorf. And Professor Kaldorf, is, um, is that realistic at some point? And maybe that point is not this fall. Maybe that point is next fall. Uh, is it an imponderable at this point? Is it just unknowable or, or because you can't really measure people's fear and social mores? Or, you know, so is it, I just want to understand what you think about sort of hopeful statements about uh, resuming life just as it was pre-COVID-19. Well, uh, uh, eventually we will reach herd immunity, and uh, I expect we to get to back to a similar how it has been. But uh, that may take a short or long time to reach herd immunity. But the key thing that when we open up society is that we don't do a general opening up we still have to protect the older people. So there has to be countermeasures to protect the older people in more isolation, uh, in a sort of a age-specific lockdown, while we, can, while we open up uh, society uh, with younger people. And that, that process has to go on for a few months where, where the society is more open than for younger people while older people are still protecting themselves, like it's currently going on in Sweden. So, so that's, you... whenever it starts, that age differential uh, uh, lockdowns or countermeasures, that's going to have to go on for a few months while herd immunity builds up among the younger while still protecting the older. And, and so is it going to be important then to really scale up the antibody testing as appears to be uh, in process so that we can measure the extent of herd immunity as it develops over the coming weeks and months? It would be very interesting to know the amount of herd immunity that exists in different places, but it's not critical to have those tests in order to determine what is the proper strategy. It will tell us how far we are along towards herd immunity, but whether we are at the beginning or at the end of that process, we have to do it age specifically to protect the older while uh, uh, having less restriction on the younger people. From the medical professionals and public health professionals I've spoken with, there seems to be some disagreement about whether there's a magic threshold in terms of a percentage that, that has to be cleared to, to declare herd immunity or there isn't. It's, a, it's more art than science in terms of a, a magic number. Uh, what, what's your perspective on that? Uh, there is a magic number, but we don't know what that number is. Okay. <laughs> there has been specu- speculations that uh, I have seen speculations between 50% and 80%, and we don't know what that number is. Um, it also varies by location. So, for example, presumably there is more spread of a disease in an urban area like New York City compared to a rural area in, let's say, rural Iowa. So uh, I would expect that the number is different and higher in urban areas and lower in uh, rural areas. But we don't know what the number is. But again, we don't need to know what that specific number is in order to know what is the optimal strategy, which is an age differential countermeasures. 
it is um, the, the perspective of the anti-herders, as you call them, is that just sort of more pipe dreaming, to borrow from uh, Dr. Miller, who we played uh, before the break, more pipe dreaming. Uh, there, there's, there needs to be an understanding, and this needs to be communicated to bring the public along, that once you end your lockdowns, even the, sort of the phase ending of your lockdown, you're going to have more infections. You may have more hospitalizations. You may have more deaths. I mean, maybe not at the same clip, but you're still going to have those incidents of all three of those things. And you have to understand what the, the sort of the end game is so that we're not in this yo-yo of, OK, we're going to reopen. Now, if we get infections and hospitalizations and deaths again, uh, we're going to close again. Now we're going to reopen. We're going to try it again. Now we're going to close again. Uh, that's very correct. Uh... There will be more. This is a, a terrible pandemic, and there will be more deaths. So, uh, unless there's a quick vaccine, um, which I agree with Dr. Miller that it will probably take some time, but uh, unless there is, there will be more deaths. And what we need to do is to minimize those deaths. And we don't minimize them by sort of doing uh, on and off in a lockdown. A lockdown. That will not minimize the number of deaths. That will just move them back or forward in time. The only way to minimize death is to uh, to do more protections for those that are higher risk, which is people above age 16, 70, while not uh, while letting uh, younger people uh, carry on with their lives in a more normal manner. In addition to that, one other way would be if there's an effective antiviral that is developed if remdesivir sort of lives up to the promise uh, currently uh, behind it as reported. Uh, is that is that fair, too? Is that uh, an antiviral therapy to treat uh, those that have severe cases of, of COVID-19 that will expedite the reopening and perhaps minimize the uh, cases of hospitalization and, and certainly death? Uh, that's very true. So if uh, if we knew that there would be an uh, antiviral treatment that will prevent death in, let's say, in a month, then it would make sense to do like the anti-herders proposed, to sort of keep the lockdown one more month and then open up. Uh, uh, and then we can treat people and save their lives as they get sick. With respect to the antiviral, uh, is should we understand that in the same way that we understand the process behind a vaccine that the, you know, don't expect that uh, it's going to be available on you know May 15th or June 1st, that this is going to take some time as well? Or could that come to market more quickly beyond just emergency use authorization? Uh, the process is a little bit different uh, uh, because in the vaccine, it's sort of a new vaccine with uh, a long manufacturing process. But uh, with existing drugs, uh, we already have to have a head up uh, with how to manufacture it and so on. But uh, so the question is, if there are, uh, uh, if we are an antiviral that works for uh, for for COVID-19, and if there is, that's great. Uh, but uh, there are infectious diseases for which we don't have proper uh, treatment. For example, influenza. We don't have a, a great treatment that will prevent uh, death from influenza uh, in all cases. So. Uh, uh, we can be more or less optimistic about that, and uh, I may be uh, not optimistic that we will have a treatment that will cure COVID-19 within the next few months. Uh, but if I'm wrong, I will be delighted. Yes, yes. 
He is uh, Harvard Medical Professor Martin Kaldorf. Professor Kaldorf, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, the more information that comes out regarding the investigation, prosecution, slash persecution of General Michael Flynn, the National Security Advisor for President Trump, very briefly, uh, the uh, more galling, uh, the more unsettling, the more we understand how corrupt Jim Comey and the senior leadership of the FBI was. Documents unsealed yesterday include handwritten notes from January 24th of 2017, the day of the FBI's interview of Flynn. Transcript includes, what is our goal? Truth slash admission or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. That's the goal. Fox News uh, dug up an interview from Jim Comey uh, in New York back in 2018 where he described what he did very, very self-satisfied about what he did, very much in keeping with his bull jive, despicable Mr. Smith goes to Washington rap. I sent them. Um, something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration, in the George W. Bush administration, for example, or the Obama administration. The <laughs> protocol, hilarious. two men that all of us have perhaps increased appreciation for uh, over no. the last two years. Not really. <laughs> and in both of those administrations, there was process. And so if the FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself to interview a senior official, you would work through the White House counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought it's early enough, let's just send a couple guys over. <laughs> and so uh, we placed a call to Flynn, said, hey, we're sending a couple guys over. Uh, hope you'll talk to them. He said, sure. Nobody else was there. They interviewed him in a conference room at the White House Situation Room, and he lied to them. And that's what he's now pled guilty to. What did he think they were coming over there for? Uh, I don't think he knew. I No, we didn't tell him. Just said, we've got a couple, sending over a couple of agents. I want to ask you some questions. I didn't have this conversation. My deputy director did. But hope, uh, hope you got a few minutes. You can sit down and talk to them. And he said, sure. Yeah, General Flynn's a real dope. He didn't pick up that Jim Comey was sending FBI agents over to see if they he they could get him to admit breaking the Logan Act of 1799, a law restricting communications between private citizens and foreign governments, which is widely viewed as unconstitutional, has never been used successfully to prosecute a single American citizen. <laughs> Much less the incoming National Security Advisor. How could Jim? Co- I mean, how could uh, General Flynn not see that? Right. Jim Comey's so smart. General Flynn's such a dunce, you know, like all the Trump administration officials. So we took advantage of this uh, patsy to try to get him to uh, lie, to admit violating the Logan Act, which is also in the notes. 
so that we could do what? What was the purpose? So that we could expose General Flynn as a Russian agent? In previously released documents, the FBI agents who interviewed him didn't believe he was lying. So they didn't believe that. So what was the goal? So we could use him to level up to get President Trump for something? What, related to the funding of his uh, inauguration party? Remarkable. Remarkable, isn't it? Uh, Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, that's Manhattan, colleague of Jim Comey's, who uh, coming into the Russian collusion investigation was uh, open-minded and willing to give Jim Comey the benefit of the doubt because he had enjoyed a good relationship with him. We've had him on the show many times, including uh, just uh, this week, talking about this very case. Here's what he had to say about what Jim Comey said in 2018 in the context of these notes now released with uh, Martha McCallum on Fox yesterday. Martha, I think what we're seeing is a meticulously planned out scheme to try to get a 33-year combat veteran of the United States to say something that was inaccurate so that they'd have a basis to try to charge him with false statements Mm -hmm. or otherwise get him fired. They did not have a legitimate investigative reason for doing this. There was no criminal predicate. There was no reason to treat him like a criminal suspect. They did the interview outside the established protocols of how the FBI is supposed to interview someone on the White House staff. They're supposed to go through the Justice Department and the White House Counsel's Office. Uh, they obviously purposely did not do that. Yeah, why would he do that there? I mean, he uh, just like he didn't do it uh, when he uh, decided that he was going to publicly exonerate Hillary Clinton because he's Johnny Law. One man, Johnny Law, Jim Comey. More on Comey and Flynn right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We were talking about uh, the uh, new documents that have been revealed related to the Michael Flynn case as he tries to withdraw his guilty plea for lying to the FBI uh, due to insufficient counsel and, uh, well, everything we're learning about how the FBI engineered this persecution of General Flynn. And and remember, he initially pled, the story is that he initially pled guilty to lying to the FBI because they were threatening to go after his son. So he essentially fell on the sword for his son so that he didn't have to go through what uh, General Flynn is going through at present. You heard from Andy McCarthy about uh, Comey breaking protocol in uh, sending FBI agents to interview Flynn on January 24th of 2017. Uh, McCarthy continued, just in terms of how unusual it is, how how uh, other suspects of a certain profile would be treated as compared to how the incoming National Security Advisor for the President of the United States was treated. If General Flynn was a gangbanger or a mafia guy, they would have sat down with him. They would have told him this is a criminal investigation. They would have identified themselves as uh, FBI agents, told him the reason for the interview, 
told him he had a right not to answer questions, told him if he made false statements that that could be grounds for prosecution, and if he made true statements, that could be used against him in a prosecution. They would do all those things for a criminal. Sean Davis uh, at thefederalist.com. The Federalist has been on top of this story. We mentioned it the other, uh, the other show uh, earlier in the week. He said that uh, Jim Comey is uh, now cemented as the most corrupt director in FBI history. That's some statement, uh, considering the likes of uh, J. Edgar Hoover. I don't know, though, that it's an erroneous statement. And what about uh, the press aiding and abetting this all the way along? Not just the uh, FBI's narrative on Flynn, the Mueller investigation's narrative on Flynn, but also uh, any... Cognitive dissonance coming from the Hill. Devin Nunez, the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, was on with Laura Ingram last night. And uh, remember, he put together a report. He and House Intel Committee Republicans put together a report suggesting there was something that didn't smell right about all of this. And he was ridiculed. Ridiculed. Uh, and he is uh, was largely the Mueller report largely corroborated Devin Nunez's account of things. And uh, now we're finding out, and Devin Nunez is finding out, that he's even more right than he thought. Well, clearly, General Flynn is going to have a civil rights case, and I think it's going to cost the government uh, millions of dollars. Uh, Secondly, hopefully, there's going to be some prosecutions uh, for this matter. And the judge really has an opportunity here to step in and sanction these lawyers. So, and, and with all that said, Laura, Uh, We brought you this, the House Republicans brought you uh, just a snippet of this information back in 2018. Uh, We were mocked, we were told it was a joke. Well, now all of a sudden you realize that what we told you at that time, not only was it true, we didn't even know the half of it. And even right now, you don't even have the half of it. There's more information coming out the rest of this week. So the, the evidence is continuing to pile up in General Flynn's General Flynn uh, uh, favor, uh, which is what we told you and what most of us knew that have, I've known General Flynn for uh, nearly 15 years. And uh, yeah. to the idea that he would be a Russian agent is preposterous. Uh, accusation, yeah, that he's a Russian agent. Accusations, this is Sean Davis reporting the Federalist. Accusations, Flynn was a traitor to his country who violated the Logan Act, as I was mentioning before the break. Gained steam following the criminal leak, criminal leak, of top-secret information to Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. Ignatius sources suggested the routine conversation between uh, Flynn and uh, Kislyak, this is Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, uh, might be a Logan Act violation. As absurd as that suggestion was, Ignatius dutifully parroted it. News reports now indicate U.S. Attorney John Durham, whose point on the 2016 investigation, as we know, and as we breathlessly await its completion and conclusions and recommendations. John Durham currently investigating the sources of those criminal leaks of top secret national security information to Ignatius. Right. One of the things, the crime we know that was committed, uh, the leaking of national security information, the unmasking of an American citizen. Uh, almost assuredly, I, who else would have the ability to do so uh, higher up in the Obama administration? And we still don't have an answer to that question. Four years later, the unmasking of General Flynn was a crime and no one disputes that. But we can't seem to find out who it was. Hopefully John Durham does.
And here's something else for all those that were cackling and clapping Jim Comey because, you know, orange man is bad. So the ends justify the means. There is no one whose constitutional rights should be sacred. Professional standing should be sacred. Freedom should be sacred. If you're in pursuit of uh, deposing President Trump, that seems to be the attitude. Okay, (laughs) it's an attitude you can take. The thug's attitude, obviously. It's the uh, short-sighted attitude to take. It's the ahistorical attitude. Have Have you seen the Richard Jewell movie? Or do you remember the story? The FBI, in conjunction with the Atlanta Journal Constitution, destroying Richard Jewell's reputation, putting him and his mother through hell. Uh, Are you familiar with Dr. Stephen Hatfield, who uh, won a multi-million dollar civil lawsuit against the federal government? Uh, Those uh, impeccable G-men, Mueller and Comey, that had the wrong man with respect to the anthrax those lace, those envelopes that were laced with, but with uh, anthrax, tried to pin it on Stephen Hatfield. Wrong. There's a documentary right out now that I recommend. Uh, that's out right now. I'd recommend on HBO, called "The Scheme," Christian Hawkins. Nothing to do with politics. Nobody you've probably ever heard of, unless you really follow college basketball. Christian Hawkins, who was an aspiring agent, and had connections to college basketball players. The FBI entrapped him to try to get to. Uh, high-profile coaches like Rick Pitino for essentially you know, bribery and extortion to get top prospects to go to particular colleges. Well, watch the scheme and what they did to that kid Christian Dawkins, even though he's not terribly sympathetic, and tell me, again, how anything goes as long as the target is someone I don't like. Wait till that target is someone you do like or even someone you know. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, those who know know that I'm no particular fan of Elon Musk, who is one of the biggest uh, welfare recipients in the Western world. But uh, when you're right, you're right. Elon Musk commenting on the lockdowns uh, with data to back it up in California. Take a listen. The extension of the shelter in place, uh, or frankly, I would call it forcibly imprisoning people in their homes uh, against all their constitutional rights, that's my opinion, and breaking people's freedoms in ways that are horrible and and, and wrong, uh, and not why people came to America or built this country. What the f***? Excuse me. Um, people, the outrage, it's an outrage. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, but it, it will cause great harm, not just to Tesla, but to many companies. Um, and while Tesla will weather the storm, there are many small companies that will not. And, and, and all people's, everything people have worked for their whole life is going to get, is, is being destroyed in real time. Um, and we're going to have many suppliers and are, are having many suppliers that are having super hard times, especially the small ones. Um, and, it's, it's causing a lot of strife to a lot of people. And he continued, uh, ending with a veritable William Wallace moment. You know, this is a time to think about the future. 
um, and, and also to, to ask, you know, are, is it right to infringe upon people's rights? As, as what is what is happening right now, um, I think the I think the people are going to be very angry about this and are very angry. Um, yeah, it's like if somebody should be if somebody wants to stay in their house, that's that's great. They should be allowed to stay in their house and they should not be compelled to leave. But to say that they cannot leave their house um, and they will be arrested if they do, this is this is a, this, is a, this is a this is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not freedom. Give people back their God freedom. Give people back their GD freedom. He uh, posted, did Musk, uh, data in California. This against the backdrop, by the way, of Gavin Newsom uh, moving to close beaches and parks uh, because he, there are reports of too many people congregating too closely. <laughs> Actual data. Uh, I'll tweet this out at Dan Prof Show. Check it out. Musk posted this. Hospital bed occupancy from 310 and then you know projecting out uh, into june and july the um april one prediction of gavin newsom the governor uh had uh, uh hospital bed occupancy being at 60 going to 60,000 by the first of may the april 10th pr- prediction revising it down had hospital occupancy going to roughly 20,000 by may one the actual data from March 30th to present is a straight line, a straight horizontal line, rather than the 45-degree angle predictions of Gavin Newsom and his models. The actual data, a horizontal line at 5,000 hospitalizations, hospital bed occupancy. 50,000, 20,000, actual 5,000 consistent since March 30. Consistent for a month. Right. Give people back their GD freedom. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. So the uh, market shot up yesterday on the news that uh, Gilead's potential antiviral therapy, remdesivir, showing some success in clinical trials after just last week, uh, being reported that uh, the clinical trials were disappointing. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, on PBS suggested he's reasonably optimistic about the prospect of a vaccine as well, and not just including the uh, news out of Oxford University yesterday, but just in general. Many, many, many people recover from coronavirus infection. This novel coronavirus, which is giving us so much trouble, So the very fact that people can mount a natural immune response that gets rid of the virus in them makes me cautiously optimistic that we can develop a vaccine that can mimic natural infection enough to induce that same sort of response that would ultimately protect people. So there's no guarantee, David, there's never a guarantee of success, but the fact that the body can do it 
gives me cautious optimism. Uh, as usual, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, last night, I spoke with Dr. Henry Miller. He's a physician and molecular biologist. He also was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Here's what he had to say about yesterday's news and the prospects of a vaccine. We've had a lot of happy talk about vaccines, about these optimistic predictions. The reality is that there's a very high ethical and regulatory bar for a vaccine that's going to be administered to hundreds of millions of healthy people, even to prevent a really awful pandemic or the, the continuation of an awful pandemic like this. You know, if we look historically at what the bar has been for vaccines, a good example is about a month ago, there was a kind of puff piece in the New York Times about the uh, reminiscing about the approval of the Salk vaccine in the yeah. 50s, ticker tape parades and, and so on, and how wonderful it was going to be. The same thing would happen when we had a coronavirus vaccine. Well, what the author of that didn't say or didn't know is that the Salk vaccine was tested in randomized controlled trials in 623,792 kids. But if we look more recently at vaccines, at the... Oh, well, and, and just just on the, the score of the polio vaccine, and that took how long to come to market? Oh, it was it was years right. Uh, right. Of, of testing, years of testing. You don't do 623,000 kids in a month. And the uh, human clinical trial that's up and running at Oxford University has 550 people in the experimental group and 550 people in the placebo group. So the prospect that, as they suggest, there could be a vaccine uh, that is to market as soon as September? I, I think that's a pipe dream. I don't see the how that's possible. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Alex Berezow. He is a, a Ph.D., microbiologist, vice president of scientific communications at the American Council on Science and Health, and a columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Greetings from Poland. And I know uh, ah. Chicago has a, fair has a fair share of Polish people, from what yes. I understand. I can tell you I I'm, on the I'm on the ground in Poland, and basically it is completely shut down in, po in Poland. Part of the reason is because the Polish healthcare system is not particularly good, and the government knows this. And so they said, well, we just need to shut everything down because we don't want people going to our hospitals where they're not going to survive. Yeah. And so that's the reality here. But it, it worked. I mean, there's not a lot of cases here and there haven't been a lot of deaths either. Right. But the, the, the story of the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, former Eastern Bloc countries, including Poland, like you're describing, is, yes, they're outperforming their Western uh, European neighbors for now. For, for now. now. Right. Yeah. That's so this is this is something that's not going to resolve itself in weeks or even months in terms of the. Uh, uh, depending on whether or not we get an effective antiviral or we get uh, even a vaccine. And why don't you weigh in on a, a bit of this debate? I mean, the, I understand the uh, EUSA for uh, uh, emergency use authorization for uh, remdesivir and and great if that uh, provides some help as well as, you know, it's like uh, hydroxychloroquine, if that provides some help in cases and doctors feel that's the right thing. OK, I'm all for the emergency use. But in terms of a grand scale, Let's start with the harder case, the vaccine. Are, are you in the reasonable optim, reasonably optimistic category like Tony Fauci, or are you more pessimistic like Dr. Miller? 
Uh, uh, a, a bit of both. Is that a nice political answer yes, for you? Yes, very good. Um, yes. Yeah, you should run for yeah, office. It's, it's like, well, I like the White Sox and the Cubs. Yeah, like uh, exactly. Love um, those answers. Yes. Yeah. So um, Dr. Fauci is correct that the fact that we have detectable antibodies and that people recover and then there's probably going to be a window of time in which a person will not be able to be infected again, that's all probably true. We know from other coronaviruses, SARS, for instance, the severe acute respiratory syndrome virus, that people will develop antibodies and then it becomes difficult to be infected again within you know, a certain amount of time. But it's probably not forever. So the idea that once you're infected, you'll be protected forever is probably not true. You, uh, in your piece about uh, the, the uh, fallacy of the false dilemma with respect to COVID, the sort of false debate, the binary between keep it all shut down in perpetuity versus open it all up immediately. There's a lot of room in between those two poles. And I think that's where most people are to the extent that there is a desire to reopen I think people are fine and would be reasonable about a phased in reopening, as we see happening in a dozen states at right now at present. Uh, what they don't like is the idea of shutdown in perpetuity with capricious rules that that uh, govern the shutdown. So liquor stores are good, but a clothing shop is not. The uh, grocery store clerk can take cash, but the uh, pro shop attendant can't. So on and so forth. You get it. Yeah, in Washington State, where I live, I live in Seattle when I'm not uh, in lockdown in Poland. Yeah, the, the, the rules made absolutely no sense. The state shut down fishing, recreational fishing. You can't go outside, you can't catch fish. I mean, it, it, why? And, and it's irritating when you hear politicians say, well, we're just following the science, and then they make some sort of ridiculous restriction that's not based on anything resembling science, and it's just an arbitrary decree. Uh, so, yeah, I, sometimes follow the science just means do what I say, and yes. I really kind of resent that. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's just I mean, I, I hate to do Monday morning quarterback because there's so much to address prospectively. But just one thing, you know, perhaps and, and, and I hate to just invoke Sweden all the time, but perhaps Sweden had it right, even if not exactly what they did. The idea is let's phase in and then phase out. So phase into a shutdown to some strictures and then phase out of those strictures rather than lockdown, draconian lockdown immediately because of the fear of the unknown. And then we figure out after the fact how and when we're going to get out, which is still happening, obviously, in a lot of states and countries. I think that's that's very sensible. I actually just came across a letter that was sent to me that was going to that's going to be sent to the president. And, and I was asked to sign it. and I didn't sign it because there were some things in it that I didn't agree with. But there was one idea that I actually think was a pretty good idea, which is from now on, we should have all uh, businesses should be classified in categories based on how much contact they involve, right? So businesses where, you know, like massage parlors and you know, barber shops, that, that's high contact business. So that would be a certain category. Then you've got a business that is, you know, on the other side, you know, what about whitewater rafting or something? I, I, I don't know. But you would classify businesses based on how much human to human contact there are. And then, and then time, there's a next time there's a pandemic, you start off by shutting down the highest contact businesses. And if that doesn't work, and you shut down the next highest contact businesses. So that's sort of what you're suggesting that Sweden did. I think that's a, an idea that we should look into. This idea that we just have to shut down all of life and everybody sit in their house for the next two or three months, I, this isn't going to work. And, I, and I'm starting to fear that there may be people that, that might start rioting or causing some problems because this is, we're social animals. We are not designed to sit around the house all day.
thinking about secondary effects, not just in response to a pandemic, then uh, how are we to be governed? Uh, it's either going to be a cacistocracy or a technocracy, and I'm not sure which is worse. Probably the technocracy. You know, it's sort of like what Winston Churchill said, if I, I think he said this, which is that democracy is the worst form of government other than everything else we've tried. Right. And so, you know, I think that that's just part of the uh, the problem that we're going to have to deal with is what do you do when highly technical decisions have to be made, but the population is not qualified to make those decisions? I don't know an easy answer to that question because we don't have a technocracy. We may not want a technocracy. So how do you handle that? I think if someone figures that out, that's that's worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. He is Alex Barris now. He is a uh, Ph.D. microbiologist, president of the Scientific Communications at uh, the American Council on Science and Health, and a uh, columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Stay safe out there. Why don't we steal away? Why don't we steal away? Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As we have said to the point of exhaustion on this show, it's not lives versus dollars. It's never been lives versus dollars. It's always been lives versus lives. You don't save lives. You trade lives. That's what's actually happening. But uh, our friend Rich Carlgaard, uh, he's taking it to the next level, the next level down, uh, to borrow Dr. Burks's favorite word. He's going granular, not just looking at lives, but uh, offering a, another way to measure the trade-offs with respect to the COVID-19 response in such a way that he is likely to be persona non grata on Twitter and social media, but that's okay. He's stout of heart. Rich Carlgaard, publisher of Forbes magazine, columnist, speaker, best-selling author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again, Dan, for having me. All right. Uh, you've done it so you're, now. You're, yeah. you're stout, too. You're sticking with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So let's go on this adventure together. We shouldn't be looking at lives versus lives. We should be looking at living days versus living days. I think what all human beings have in common, rich and poor, regardless of their ethnicity or anything else, what we all have in common is the living day. We're all alive today. Most of us will be alive tomorrow. It's the only thing that we have that is a common human currency. And so when you look at the living days, I think you have to consider when you look at the COVID-19 tragedy, it is skewed toward the end of life. We just learned yesterday that 40% of COVID deaths here in California are in nursing homes. Right. So a fair question to ask is what is the median age of death from COVID-19. Nobody seems to know the exact answer. Smaller states seem to have a handle on the number. Vermont, it's 80, for example. But nationally, let's say it's 72 or 75 or something like that. And then you look at the comorbidity that also goes along with people dying from COVID-19, and that's diabetes, obesity, uh, a lifelong habit of smoking cigarettes, and things like that. So the question is the medium age of death and what would be a reasonable projection of the days that those people who died from COVID-19 had left? Making no judgment whatsoever about their economic productivity, I would never dare 
even suggest that or the quality of life. That's up to God to judge, uh, not fellow human beings, simply the number of days they likely would have had left. And when you get to that, you see that the COVID-19 deaths, I'm projecting 80,000 deaths this season. It may be more. Uh, let's call it 100,000. Let's be a little grim about it. How many days left would those 100,000 people have had if they hadn't died from COVID-19? And probably it's on the order of 1,000 days, 1,500 days, something like that. And so now look at uh, automobile accidents. We can project that 38,000 Americans will die in a car crash or from complications of a car crash. The median age of a car death is in the low to mid-30s. These people who were, whose lives were taken in a car crash had, on average, something like 16 or 17,000 days that were stolen from them. So if you look at the scope of the tragedy that way, car deaths are seven times the number of living days stolen than COVID-19 is likely to be. Now, that doesn't take away the tragic effects of COVID-19 in any way. It simply puts a different sort of lens on it and gives you a different proportion of the scale of the of one tragedy versus another. Well, and, and here's the thing about it. it. You know, people are just unwilling to say this, but I, and, and the strong because you're you're unwilling to have to confront the straw man argument about that. Anybody wants anybody to die uh, any sooner than, you know, God wills. That's the premise that we're all starting from. So if we could just get past that, then we can have an intelligent conversation. And the reality is, um, you know, your 90 year old grandmother in a nursing home is viewed differently by even you, much less uh, society, as compared to, say, uh, an 18-year-old who is conscripted to serve our country in Southeast Asia, which is the comparisons that are being made. It, you, you know, grandma, it's terrible grandma died, and nobody wants her to die, and we want to do everything we can to keep her alive. But she lived a good life. The 18-year-old uh, in Vietnam is a completely different story. It's a completely different tragic event. It's a completely different loss of potential and contribution and fulfillment. Why can't we say that? Well, in fact, you know, health economists do say something like that. They're, they're actually uh, a little tougher nose about it than I am here. They have something about quality adjusted lo- uh, life years, and they attempt to make uh, a quality of life judgment. And I'm not doing that at all. Right. I wouldn't dare do that. Only God can do that. It's a duration. You're making a duration case. It's the number of days. Now, my dad lived a full life, and he died of pneumonia in a nursing home. I mean, take COVID-19 out of it. Usually the end-of-life event for someone in a nursing home is pneumonia. A gust of pneumonia blows through the nursing home and takes the lives of people who everybody knew, maybe had six months to a year left. And they used to call pneumonia the old person's friend because among all deaths, you know, this one could be managed. It was relatively short and relatively painless, not to minimize the fact of a death. But as you point out, you know, we, 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 we feel sorry for our parents and our grandparents who passed in a nursing home. We celebrate their lives. We feel absolutely gutted when a child dies or a young adult dies or an income earner supporting a family in mid-career dies. Those are tragic events. And I think, I think what's happening now is that politicians like Governor Cuomo are beating us over the head and making us feel guilty with this a life is a life. 
And it's and it's more is it, you're right, and it's even more ridiculous than those specious arguments. It's Zika Manual. The ghoul Zeke Emanuel, 75 and out Zeke Emanuel, who wants to shut down the country for 12 to 18 months until there's a vaccine, maybe. Um, he is the pro-lifer, and people like you and I are not. That's how good the left is at flipping the script, I guess. Well, it is. And I don't see any empathy coming from the left on the small business person who lost their business. Oftentimes, you'll hear them laugh at it. We don't need tattoo parlors anyway. Right. As if the only businesses that are going down are tattoo parlors, and as if the tattoo parlor doesn't have a right to exist as a business. So when 30 million people are suddenly thrown out of work, um, the cascading effect of that and health on people's lives. I've talked to a psychologist who said the number of people who are mentioning suicides in their consultations with her has gone up by about 4 to 5x, a number you also see reflected in suicide hotlines. Um, undiagnosed cancers, all the kinds of things that people talk about because, you know, the, the hospital crisis we have is not one of overcrowding, but it's one of underuse right now. Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota is running at 35 percent capacity. So when you calculate the, the human misery and the, uh, and the lives ruined and even premature deaths as a result of all this economic ruin, um, you have to do that. That's part of the calculation. President Trump made the mistake in these briefings that he had of not of not having economists, health, public health economists standing side by side with doctors Burke and Fauci to talk about this. I agree. He, he, he missed the opportunity to do that. I agree. It's, uh, we, it's, um, we need to bring back uh, and update the uh, misery index from the Carter years, it seems. Rich Carlgaard, publisher of Forbes magazine, columnist, speaker, best-selling author of, check out this book, get this book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you again, Dan. Take care. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did? Looking like a true survivor. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The Chinese communists, there's a report that China attempted to steal remdesivir, the antiviral therapy that is uh, reportedly going to get emergency use authorization for the FDA because of promising clinical trials. In January of this year, weeks after the coronavirus first reported in China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology applied for a patent on remdesivir used to treat these infections. There's actually a a copy of the alleged application, but it's in Chinese, that's posted online. The Chinese changed the drug name in their application, called it Redoxivir. They also admit in their application they illegally reverse-engineered remdesivir without Gilead's permission for quote-unquote humanitarian reasons due to the pending epidemic. The pending epidemic that they unleashed. It all speaks to the uh, pressing need to re-examine our relationship in every single facet with the Chinese, the Chinese communists, that is the Chinese power structure, doesn't it? Uh, For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Curtis Ellis. He's the founder of American Jobs Alliance, served as a senior policy advisor on the Trump 2016 campaign and the transition team as a uh, special advisor as well to the U.S. Secretary of Labor and the Trump administration. Curtis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for what you're doing, drawing attention to the cancer of the chinese communist party yeah how, these people how about that why cheat and steal like uh it's like that uh 
Geico commercial. It's what they do. You know, if you're a Chinese communist, you lie, cheat, and steal. Well, you know, it's it's, it's funny because we we said that in we're in, very early on in the administration when it was about uh, you know tariffs to try to bring China to the table to try and get trade deals done and so on and so forth. And the question was always, well, you know, the idea of getting them to to cease intellectual piracy. You have to understand that's not a bug in their model. That's the feature of their model. So, <laughs> exactly so how, right. do you, how do you ever get them to stop absent uh, something more draconian than a free trade agreement? Exactly right. You don't. You don't get them to stop. The way you get them to stop is you get rid of the Chinese Communist Party. And I want everybody to remember, everybody to hear, our enemy is not the Chinese people. It's the Chinese Communist Party. They, they are oppressing the Chinese people as well as exploiting the world. And destroying the world with this virus and now they're trying to profit off the chaos they unleashed that's why we're saying over at the american jobs alliance it's time to boycott china and that message boycott china is a message for everybody it's a message to our government stop sending seven million dollars to do bat virus research in chinese labs in wuhan that's what our government did Mm -hmm. stop sending money to the world health organization which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a message to corporate America that every chance we get, we're going to buy something made anywhere but China. Unfortunately, we don't have a made in America alternative to everything that's also made in China because now, as we learned with our PPE, our face masks, our protective equipment, and so much of our medical devices, it's only made in China. But there are other places in many cases. So when we go buy... We don't have to buy a Buick Envision SUV, which is 100% made in China. We can buy somebody else's SUV that's not 100% made in China, even though it's not 100% made in the USA. And it's a message to Wall Street to stop sending our money to China. Do you know that Chinese companies that do not open their books, Chinese companies are listed on the American Stock Exchange, but they are not held to the same standards as American companies. If an American company said, sorry, you can't audit my books we're not going to let you do that. They'd be in federal prison. They'd be brought up by the Securities and Exchange Commission. But that's exactly what Alibaba and other Chinese companies like that, that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange saying, the Chinese government says, our books are a state secret. You're not allowed to look at them. Why are we letting those people sell stock to American investors? Why is the federal government today, this very day, getting ready to invest the retirement savings of active duty American military men and women in Chinese companies that are building weapons aimed at America. But that's what they're doing. There is so much idiocy going on in this country uh, at the highest levels because the people listening here, the people like you and me, the American people get it that China is not our friend. There's a new poll just came out today on John Solomon's site, Just the News. 70% of Americans want trade restrictions on China because they know China is out to bury us. So that's why we say boycott China. Go to getoutofchina.us. We've got to get this message out. We've got to put some backbone in these spineless politicians who've been letting this go on for too long. We have some hero politicians out there. You've got Josh Hawley over there in Missouri and Tom Cotton down in Arkansas, President Trump in the Oval Office. But there are so many people that have let this happen. This didn't just happen. We had politicians in Washington let it happen, make it happen, and profit off it happening. 
When we come back, I want to pick up on the idea of boycotting China and whether that takes the form of persuasion or coercion. More with Curtis Ellis, founder of the American Jobs Alliance, when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Curtis Ellis, founder of the American Jobs Alliance. And Curtis, let me ask you uh, exactly what you mean when you talk about boycotting China. Is this going to be government driven or are we going to be in the business of persuading Apple not to assemble iPhones in China and other companies that have part of their supply web located in China? You know, what's the are you looking for persuasion here and time for companies to make decisions about how they're going to operate their businesses, those multinational businesses, or are you looking for government policy that uh, that imposes mandates or some combination? We have to be very clear here. China has been waging economic warfare against America. They've been launching that attack from their factories, from their mills, from their mines, and they have destroyed American industry as effectively as if they were using precision-guided munitions. And they're doing this on purpose. They are not playing by capitalist rules. They are not playing by free market rules. So I don't want to hear somebody from the Cato Institute or some you know, pointy-headed academic tell me, oh, well, it's against free market economics if you want to tell companies that they can't do business in China. Why would you do business with an outfit that wants to end your ability to do business? Why would you call it free market capitalism to do business with somebody who wants to end free market capitalism? That's called trading with the enemy. Yeah, we but, have a country here, but, right? But, we but, have a country and we want to keep our country. I'm sorry. You know, that's I, I all right. But, but let, let me stick up for the pointy heads for just a second and play, play, <laughs> play devil's advocate. Because, I mean, you know, if, if this is, look, because it, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting discussion because it's all about drawing lines. So if we're only going to be involved in trade with you know, countries that are what democracies, they're not uh, in violation of uh, human rights uh, strictures and mores. They're they're not otherwise trying to undermine uh, America's representative republic. Then then we're going to have to block out a lot of countries, aren't we? More than just China. We've got problems in Russia. We've got problems all over the globe. Now, I'm not worried about the Central African Republic that uh, at one time was ruled by a cannibal. I'm not worried about the central and, and we buy cocoa. We buy chocolate beans from the Central African Republic. I'm not worried about them ending our way of life. China is a nuclear armed adversary, which has stated as its goal to destroy America, to destroy individual liberty, to replace it with collectivism, where everybody works for the state and for the good of the state. That's a threat, okay? We did business with the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War when they had nuclear missiles pointed at our cities. We sold them wheat. I have no problem selling them wheat. I have no problem selling them combines to harvest their own wheat if they can figure out how to grow it. I have no problem with that. But giving them the crown jewels of our technology is something else. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say boycott China, this is a part of it is up to consumers. Are you going to buy the shirt? Uh, the, the, the pair of pants that's sewn in China, or are you going to buy the pair of pants that's sewn in Mexico or in you know, New York or Los Angeles? Are you going to buy the, 
you know, the swimsuit that was sewn in California, or are you going to buy the one that was cut and sewn in China? You can make that decision. But we're also sending a message up and down the line. We've got to be clear-eyed and real, uh, realistic about what is going on. China has shown it has the power and the intention to stop our way of life. They have literally stopped our way of life, and they've got Governor Pritzker helping them do it. Yes. He's playing along like yes. the useful idiot. <laughs> yes. so. We've got all sorts of useful idiots here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all need, to, need to be honest in a way we see so many people not being honest, talking about trade-offs in the pandemic, the era of this pandemic. And you say, look, um, if we're going to move in this direction against China, like you suggest, then you may, some of you, including at the lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, may see your purchasing power decline when you go, for example, to Walmart, at least in the short term. Let's just be honest about that. So it's, it, there's a trade-off, at least in the short term, if we're going to encourage uh, companies, global companies like the Walmarts of the world to change their supply webs to, dis, to, to, to uh, disinvest from China – and there are at least short-term consequences to be paid. So let's just understand what they are and make an informed decision. And you're going to end up with a better job. I think these companies should move back to the United States and hire Americans to make the things that they've been paying slave wages in China. Okay. That's why we tell everybody, get out of China. And that's the name of our website, getoutofchina.us, getoutofchina.us. Look, we have been told for, I've been fighting this fight for a long time. And everybody always said, oh, what do you care about those manufacturing jobs? Manufacturing is such a small part of the American economy. It's, it's like 15% or it's a tiny part of the American. Everybody's working in the service industries now. Well, if that's true, then it means if we have the manufacturing here and if we pay a little bit more for the manufactured stuff, it's such a small part of the economy, we're paying a little bit more for a very tiny part of the economy. In other words, this is a luxury we can afford. When Americans are earning more, they're going to be able to buy more and consume more. Uh, and and the, so Nike makes a little bit less on those $150 sneakers because they're not made in China, because they're made someplace else. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember when just about everything was made in America, and I did not come from an affluent family. And we all had shoes, and we all had clothes, and uh, my neighbors weren't on uh, food stamps. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they, they were able to take vacations and, and things like that. So, look, the, the, the idea of paying a little bit more is something that Americans are willing to do. Uh, and I'm, I, I, ready look, to do in order to have a country. I'm not arguing. I'm I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not arguing that that's the case. I'm just saying, you know, we should be transparent about. Uh, yeah. We should always be transparent about trade-offs. I know you're not disagreeing. I just wanted to make that point. Uh, he is yeah. he is Curtis Ellis. Uh, the website again, as he mentioned, getoutofchina.us. Founder of American Jobs Alliance, uh, served as a senior policy advisor on the Trump 2016 campaign, the transition team, and as a special advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Labor in the administration. Curtis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for everything you're doing. You're a great show. Take Thank care. You. Thank you.
more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Prof is single. Yeah, it's getting easier and easier to socially isolate. Maybe the uh, new normal will just be fine with me, uh, if that's what it's going to be. Uh, This uh, from the New York Daily News, which, as I know, is a leftist rag, and it's sickening, but it doesn't mean this is untrue. Local, or excuse me, Long Island matchmaker says Cuomo brothers are, quote-unquote, more desired than the Jonas brothers. The Jonas brothers, if you uh, don't have uh, young girls, uh, are, uh, you know, like a boy band. Uh, The Cuomo brothers won a tie for the most handsome men in New York, a contest that I survey my clients every year to know what women are looking for, said professional professional matchmaker Maureen Tara Nelson. Most wanted in my 19 years of matchmaking and every year I've done this particular survey, I've never had a tie sampling more than 2000 clients for her survey and Fredo and Zeppo tied. Nelson says hundreds of women have said, quote, find me someone like that, unquote, about the two brothers. If that's what women are looking for. uh, Chris Cuomo, that buffoon. uh, Ill-tempered buffoon on top of it. And uh, Andrew Cuomo. (laughs) Then, uh, yeah, that's why Dan Proft is single. Uh, rather than uh, participating in matchmaking surveys, particularly ones that include the Cuomo brothers on the list, uh, I got a better idea. For my listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces, uh, and you can live stream it at nosafespaces.com. This is, uh, of course, the film uh, put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, that focuses on the assault free speech is under on college campuses on social media platforms in Hollywood, including during COVID-19. No new normal for that. Just the same old. No Safe Spaces was the number one political documentary of 2019. And now it's available to watch at home, but only at nosafespaces.com because, of course, as Hollywood and social media platforms are waging war against ideas and positions they don't like, uh, they haven't uh, provided a platform for no safe spaces at Amazon or Hulu or Netflix. So go to nosafespaces.com, do it now, use the promo code SAFE25 for 25% off no safe spaces, and you can watch no safe spaces as many times as you want until the end of May, until May 31st, and maybe in some of our bluer states by the end of May, even we will be allowed back outside.
fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, you can follow us at danproftshow.com. That's where you can get podcasts of the show as well, as you can get them at uh, Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media, Dan Prof Show, at Dan Prof Show, both on Twitter and Facebook, at Prof Dan on Instagram. I really enjoy this gentleman's work that is going to join us next. Even though we come from different philosophical places, I'm talking about Matt Taibbi. He uh, writes about the trickle of Bela out in one of his more recent uh, posts. As we head into the second month of the pandemic lockdown, two parallel narratives are developing about the financial rescue, writes Taibbi. And one, ordinary people receive aid through programs that are piecemeal, complex, and riddled with conditions, if they receive it at all. Many are still waiting for things like unemployment uh, checks. Uh, Second, relief programs, the second uh, uh, track, relief programs aimed at the top income levels were immediate, staggering in size and scope, and often appeared as grants rather than loans. I don't disagree with that, but I want to complicate the picture a little bit. I uh, spoke last night with uh, Andrew Biggs from the American Enterprise Institute, and he is uh, not just somebody who writes a lot about uh, public sector pension and debt issues. He is also a member of the Financial Oversight Board of Puerto Rico with respect to their bankruptcy. So he knows a little bit, not just in theory, but in practice, trying to reorganize a bankrupt territory. And here was his reaction initially to the news that I provided that uh, in Illinois, Governor Pritzker is going ahead with $261 million in pay increases for public sector workers per their collective bargaining agreement. For a state which, to be frank, everyone knows has been irresponsible in pension funding for decades. This is not somebody hit by a car walking down the street. This is a perennial bad actor when it comes to pension funding, and there's just simply no reason this should be bailed out without condition. Right, and and, and we've seen uh, constructive bailouts just in the public sector, just as we see in the private sector, uh, workarounds to revitalize a business that was moribund. Detroit, prior to the outbreak at least, after its uh, reorganization uh, half a dozen years ago, was starting to come back a bit. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, pre-China Hong Kong, but it was on the mend. Well, it's, you know, there, there are good stories and there's, you know, there's, you know, not so encouraging stories. Going in, I had hoped that the elected officials on the island would really have internalized that the way they do business has to change. That, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, they have to be more efficient how they do these things. They have to re- reduce corruption. They have to improve their, their sort of governmental quality. Um, and to focus on the things the government needs to do, not on what they just want to do. By and large, it's, it's business as usual down there. Even if Illinois were to default on all the debt it owes, there are still huge unfunded liabilities in the pension system. And they've got to figure out how, how they address that. Because your Constitution says you can't cut benefits, but you can't get blood from a stone if they don't have the money, they don't have the money. So it gets to be a very complicated issue. And one of the key takeaways, and he agreed with this point, that he was just leading to is uh, bankruptcy is not going to save Illinois or other states that have huge unfunded pension liabilities. Don't think of bankruptcy is not a magic wand any more than a blank check from the federal government is what you have in Illinois and in so many other states. And I would say inside the Beltway is a political culture problem. And until you have people that are seriously interested in changing the political culture 
paradigm change than whether it's going to be bankruptcy or it's going to be continuing to borrow against tomorrow to pay for yesterday, you're going to have the same problems and you're going to have the same people suffering and the same class of people benefiting. It's not just a binary. It's a, it's a, to borrow the phrase of the day, it's an all in really interesting about what he sees as the problem in Puerto Rico that you would think that after that you'd have buy-in and you would have people wanting to engage in structural reform so they don't get to that place again. And that's not what's happening. Well, there's no indication anybody on either either party in this state, not anybody, but very few people in either party in this state are interested in what Biggs is talking about either. The same problem he identifies in Puerto Rico. For more on this, we're now pleased to be joined by Matt Taibbi, reporter at Taibbi, T-A-I-B-B-I, dot substack dot com, author of The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing and co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast. Matt, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. As I said, I, I, uh, I concede your points about... Uh, two parallel narratives about the financial rescue, but comment on the, the third narrative, and that's the public sector one, states that want to be bailed out by the federal government, even as the federal government is trying to bail out the federal government, which is quite a trick. Right. Well, those are completely different stories from the ones I'm working on. I mean, I, I have written about the unfunded liability issue and uh, yeah, the, the, the dynamic that your guest didn't mention is that a lot of the states that are having problems with unfunded liabilities failed over the years to make their annual require contributions. Um, and sometimes when times were good, they just decided to put in less. And sometimes when times were bad, they decided to put in less. And as a result, as you know, that's not how these funds work. You have to put the contribution in all the time or else in the rainy day, the money's not going to be there. So the country, the the states that have recklessly borrowed against their, essentially borrowed against their pension funds to fund other liabilities, um, and then suddenly say that they need a bailout. Yeah, I agree. Those the states probably shouldn't get one. Um, but I don't. I also don't believe that the, that the workers should be the people who take the hit in that situation. Um, I, you know, I don't know how to resolve that issue, but it's not their fault uh, that this happened. Uh, going back to uh, the report, the, your piece that we were that I was referencing earlier, the um, ordinary people programs versus the uh, top income level programs, uh, develop that a little bit for us. Those competing narratives you top lined. Well, I think this is something that people um, are beginning to see. You know, most people understand they they, they heard the headlines about how there were, there are going to be twelve hundred dollar checks available to everybody, and uh, there are going to be small business loans that that should be available right away. In practice, what, what what people are learning is that there are a whole series of conditions that you have to meet to get any one of the um, access to any one of these programs. They've been beset with problems, and if you do get the money, it's not necessarily going to be forgivable. Um, there's a whole series of conditions that come attached to it. The banks are are being very very slow about delivering the loans. There's all there's on the main street side. There's just lots and lots of problems, and of course, and also the money is just not enough for most people. I mean, they even even if they do get the $1,200 check, you know, we have tens of millions of people who who've lost their employer-based health insurance. So it's just not even close to adequate to dealing with the problem. But on the Wall Street side, they just used an immediate. World War II level commitment to propping up the capital markets. And it wasn't like there was any delay. They just immediately started buying, you know, in one day it was $75 billion worth of mortgages a day. And or the next day it might've been 50 billion of treasuries a day. 
they went started buying junk bonds, corporate bonds. I mean, it's it's a massive, massive uh, program that dwarfs the size of the other bailout. I understand the uh, precipitating event is very different, but it, does it seem to you that we have learned much of anything from the uh, measures that were taken in response to the financial crisis and ensuing recession in, in 2007 to 2009? Uh, with respect to what the government ha- has done here? Does it seem like uh, the business of picking winners and losers, uh, the business of uh, uh, protecting institutional interests, uh, the uh, unanimity, around, virtual unanimity around doing uh, these things? It, it seems like we're uh, taught sort of uh, permafreezed in terms of how the government is going to respond to these things uh, uh, going forward. No, we, we learned nothing from that period, and uh, we're repeating all the same mistakes we made back then. Back in 2007 through 2009, uh, the financial services industry was, was racked with a problem that really originated on Wall Street. It came from a, a, an issue in which big banks, investment banks, and mortgage originators were creating huge masses of fraudulent mortgage loans uh, and marketing them to big institutional investors like pension funds and insurance companies. Um, they're basically, they were, they were selling mortgages that were much riskier than they were representing to their clients. Uh, and those exact companies became the recipients of the, the bailout programs that we devised. So that immediately creates this moral hazard issue where you're rewarding the bad actors for their bad behavior which just incentivizes everybody to do the same thing all over again. It's part of an overall pattern where companies know that if they screw up badly enough uh, and if they're systemically important, quote unquote, um, that the state will come in and will rescue them and then, and won't impose a series of restrictions on top of that. So that's exactly what's happening here. A lot of the companies that are getting bailed out were extremely irresponsible with their money you think about the airline industry, which engaged in you know, upwards of $90 billion in stock buybacks in the eight, eight years before this, this disaster, um, and that's how much money we're giving them. You know, so all the cash that they, they, they gave out to their shareholders, we, we now have to bail out because they didn't have it. He is Matt Taibbi. He's a reporter. I find his work at taibbi.substack.com, author of The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing, co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Richard Bledsoe, who calls himself a remodernist. I like that term, remodernist, juxtaposed against postmodernist and postmodernism. Uh, that's the name of his blog, Remodern Review. He's an artist. Uh, he writes about uh, what he sees happening in terms of the uh, popular response from the postmodernists from the left to the COVID-19 pandemic and argues uh, fairly optimistically that what he sees is the progressives losing not cooperating with the new totalitarian overlords that are popping up all around us is very bad manners. But what I see here isn't a final consolidation of their power. What I see is a desperate kamikaze style assault on a culture which is rejecting them. There won't be a quote unquote new normal. 
at least not in the terms demanded by our new aristocracy of the well-connected, there will be a normal, enhanced by the knowledge that all those who claim to be our betters aren't. They've tried to camouflage their greed and incompetence with a deceptive mentality dedicated to destruction rather than creation. Postmodernism is beyond dead. The woo-hoo flu exposes postmodernism rigor mortis. All it can do is restrict and decay. But we who live will grow beyond the reach of this expired ethos. The remodern era has already begun. For reaction to that uh, very chipper outlook on the future, we're pleased to be joined again by Rusty Reno, the indispensable Rusty Reno, the editor at First Things, firstthings.com. Rusty, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Dan. What do you think of what uh, Richard Bledsoe has to say in terms of uh, prediction about the, of the demise of postmodernism? I know Richard. And uh, I think he's overly optimistic. <laughs> yeah, so do I. I mean, I love it, but I, I, I wish I didn't feel that way, but I do. Yeah, from his lips to God's ears, I mean, we don't know what the outcome of all this is going to be. But my concern is the what I would call the tyranny of public health that may actually, we may come out of that with that regime stronger, not weaker, and reorganizing civic life around the kind of the impossible goal of nobody getting sick. Yeah, that's uh, sort of what you write in this most excellent piece, uh, Coronavirus Reality Check. Uh, you talk about uh, the experts, the professionals, the bureaucrats, the public officials, and all of their incentives are to say the danger is still present, but for what we did, it would have been much worse. So stick with us, even at the expense yes. of your freedom and your economic uh, prosperity and your quality of life. Yes, I mean, stick with us. I mean, fear, it's interesting. You know, in New York, you know, we live in apartment buildings, and you know, apartment buildings have staff. These men have been coming to work for the last six weeks. You know, they haven't missed work. Um, and one of the young guys, he doesn't wear a mask. I said, so, Akon, what's, what's with the no mask? He looks at me and says, fear is the way people control you. Mm-hmm. So he refuses to accept the narrative of that death is right around the corner and that we all have to live in fear. And, and I thought, wow. I mean, that, that is true. Fear is how people try to control you. And I did say you can, can control, not, not the right word. Love is also a powerful tool. But uh, I think we are in, a, in this moment, in this crisis, where there is a legitimate concern that people should have if, they're, you know, if they have medical conditions and so on. There's a legitimate concern and caution that they should exercise. But this universal fear is, is really quite disturbing to me. Don't you find it a bit ironic, too, that the people that are the most vociferous to the point of pandemonium about uh, saving one life, about staying inside, saving lives, about excoriating people, uh, playing t-ball with their daughter in a park. Um, These are the people that are, generally speaking, uh, men and women of the left, generally speaking, pro-abortion, generally speaking, pro-euthanasia, generally speaking, say nothing about the uh, pediatric deaths uh, to influenza on an annual basis, which are more than the pediatric deaths of COVID-19 this year right now. And so I'm a bit confused. They'll do anything and everything to save a life, except when they won't in every other quarter. Let me add to that. You know, in the last decade, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died of drug overdose deaths, opioid overdose deaths. And our major public policy response has been to legalize marijuana. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree completely with you that our ruling class has fixated on this disease. One can understand why in March um, we should have been very concerned because we knew so little about the disease. It could, in fact, have been much worse than it has turned out to be. But this, our ruling class has, has shown itself indifferent to the lives of most Americans. 
And now when it might touch them, they suddenly become, you know, this, you know, anxious to convince us that they're so concerned for our well-being. Do you think? Uh, so I find it, yeah. I find it very, uh, I'm with you, I find it uh, very unpersuasive, that claim. And, and, I, and I wonder if it's, you know, the, the a combination that we've talked about on the show before with uh, Theodore Dalrymple about uh, thrill-seeking, uh, fear, uh, you know, thrill-seeking when there's really nothing to fear. Um, so as to say you accomplished something, you overcame, you, uh, you're a COVID-19 veteran, you uh, were a hero in trying to warn people about the dangers of COVID-19, you saved lives, thrill-seeking when there's no real fear. Uh, that's one aspect. The other aspect is this uh, idea that uh, more and more Americans, in fact, I, I would say, I, I would suspect it may be a majority at this point, believe this is all there is. And so if this is all there is, then the highest order good is biological existence, regardless of the quality of the textured existence beyond your biological existence. Yes. I mean, if you don't think that there's any life beyond this life, then it's very easy to be seduced by the false view that our physical survival is the highest good. But even people who don't believe in life after death, I think they know that life is a kind of a doing. It's an activity. It's a way of being. It's not a mere state of continued existence. And we can't stay in our bedrooms for the rest of our lives and have any kind of happiness, even if somehow that ensures that we live a little bit longer. I mean, one thing I'll never do is, boy, you'll never let me be put into a nursing home. I mean, what if you're 90 years old? Yeah. You're in a nursing home, you're compass mentis, but you're limited. You can't function on your own. And you're going to have to spend the next 18 months in solitary confinement and no one you love is allowed to visit you. I mean, I don't think any 90-year-old would take that choice. You know, I, you yeah. know, I can either increase my odds of not getting the disease by being alone for 18 months. It's insane. It's a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. We're so focused on how much of a percentage of the overall death toll is coming from nursing homes and so concerned about what we're doing to protect people in nursing homes, the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable, and you don't even think about quality of life. Uh, that's sort of a trap well, that they get I you mean, in. The, uh, and don't get me wrong, these are really hard things for the managers of these sure, nursing no, homes I, and, yeah. and so yeah. on. So don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not in favor of trying to open the doors. No, no, no. You're 90 years old. It's not like you've got another 10 years to live. Maybe, maybe you do, but maybe, maybe your death is going to come naturally just in a year, and you, and you spend that whole year never seeing your loved ones. Uh, this is not a game. Um, and I was, I, I visited an emergency room in the Bronx, very hard hit hospital, and uh, the head of the emergency room, his big concern is now that there's nobody there, right? So no one's coming in to be treated uh, because they're so afraid, and also because you can have no visitors. So what mother is going to take a sick child to the emergency room if she can't accompany her child into the emergency room? I mean, your, your child would have to be on the brink of death before you would be willing to just turn your, your child over at the door and be taken into the hospital. Um, so we've got a real problem here with this kind of a maniacal fixation on this disease, which is a bad, you know, a bad disease that, you know, you know, we, we don't, we don't want people to get it, but we've got to realize that, there are other issues and problems in our society we have to address. We've got to get out of this COVID-19 mania. He is Rusty Reno, editor at FirstThings, FirstThings.com. Check out his piece, Coronavirus Reality Check, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Rusty, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great. Good to be on the show. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. It's The Dan Proft Show.
on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal by Dan Henninger uh, about uh, Trump's so-called Lysol moment and um, the uh, media distortion of it. Uh, He uh, writes, if today Alexander Fleming announced his accidental discovery of penicillin, the first sentence of every news report would say, no evidence exists that it's a cure. This is a mindset whose instinct is to diminish hope. Fortunately, there's no evidence the American people want to live that way. And he's talking about uh, the um, uh, dampening down, if not outright ridiculing, suggestions that uh, hydroxychloroquine may provide some hope. Clinical trials still ongoing. The initial reports are mixed, admittedly. But that's why they do clinical trials. That's why you get emergency use authorization. Same thing with remdesivir. Uh, Last week... Clinical trials not promising. Yesterday, clinical trials promising. Clinical trials ongoing. Uh, He uh, also notes that this isn't the first time we've seen this. Some things don't change. Back uh, then, uh, during the 80s, uh, the AIDS uh, uh, crisis, much of the media admonished AIDS patients who protested outside the offices of the FDA. Uh, Admonished these willing risk-takers just as they've done to cancer patients over the years, to be patient with the FDA status quo until double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials establish both safety and efficacy. So FedEx AIDS patients besieged the FDA, an event that did much to push the media over to their side. The status quo defense is always high-minded, but in a mortal crisis, it can look particularly unattractive. When the media mocked hydroxychloroquine, exactly what treatment did they think all these COVID patients were getting in ICUs? Doctors were flying blind. Recall how desperate the early urgency over ventilators uh, doctors on the front lines surmise that forced oxygen damaged the lungs of many COVID patients. Despite the early urgency over ventilators, they surmised that forced oxygen damaged the lungs of many COVID patients. And then we heard reports about them shifting and uh, using machines that uh, aid people with sleep apnea. Uh, the mentality, though, to uh, both scapegoat and uh, and diminish the prospects of effective treatments is a bizarre one. And there's another good example of uh, the former, which I want to discuss with our next guest. He is Dr. Robert Goldberg, the vice president at the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Uh, Dr. Goldberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me, Dan. Another example uh, of the kind that uh, Henninger is referencing in his piece in the journal is one that you write about, which is the sort of remarkable uh, research effort by uh, that that was t- taken up at the University of Chicago to determine whether or not watching Fox News, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, uh, was the proximate cause of people's death from COVID nineteen. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, to your point, uh, the media's coverage of, of the whole COVID-19 crisis and, and what works and what doesn't and who caused it and, and who didn't cause it is really a function of their bias and their tendencies. That Chicago, University of Chicago piece basically ignores the question is, well, what were people thinking about um, before they watched Sean or Tucker? Or in the case of my father who hates Fox News, 
I mean, he drives to the grocery store every day. Um, I'm not blaming Rachel Maddow or Chris Cuomo for his quote unquote behavior. Um, and even the, the uh, as you pointed out, the, the, uh, the, the trashing of hydroxychloroquine, which my daughter took and she recovered, you know, within a night, uh, within, uh, you know, within 12 hours. Interesting. Uh, the, the way in which they've manipulated the approach. You know, it turns out, for example, that remdesivir will probably get an emergency authorization use. Uh, they did a, a very short clinical trial, uh, whereas, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine has also had uh, developed um, evidence of its efficacy using the same kind of trial design that is now being hailed by Tony Fauci to approve remdesivir. So I think we have to be really careful about um, trusting, not you, but the sort of the cable news outlets about what works and what, what doesn't work. When we, um, uh, and blaming, you're blaming us for causing uh, this virus. I, I mean, the, the the University of Chicago study is embarrassing, frankly. I mean, oh, study is to, to call it a study is to give it to more legitimacy than it deserves. When we come yeah. back, though, I, I want to review with you some of the uh, the data that you include in this piece about uh, uh, different attitudes about the COVID-19 pandemic based on your ideological disposition and what that might tell us. More with uh, Robert Goldberg. He's the vice president at the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with uh, Robert Goldberg. He's the vice president of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest, and. Um, uh, mentioned before the break that uh, in this uh, write-up that you did about uh, attitudes toward the pandemic, there is really a clear divide between those who come to the table with a sort of philosophically more conservative or freedom-oriented uh, disposition versus mm-hmm. those who come to the table with a, a more government-oriented disposition. And so when we this you know when you hear politicians say this is not the time for politics this is not the, this is the time for everybody to be in it together well well we're in it together but we have very different ideas about what the response should look like and it's informed right. by our belief system so that this is what's sort of uh, uh, you know uh, squaring off in in the public arena right and and really the difference is on the one hand you have we're all in this together. I have a neighbor down the street whose you know, grocery store closed and whose clothing store is shut down. We can figure out a way together to get back to somewhat normal on the on one hand. On the other, it's we're in this together, but we'll tell you what to do based upon our experts. Right. And, that's, you know, right. and, and, and there's this whole event. Uh, if you read uh, something that's very revealing, and I have a lot of respect for Bill Gates, but he sort of uh, he released a, a note which summarizes sort of confirms some of the data that I uncovered, which shows that people that are very liberal side of the spectrum are more afraid of the pandemic, more afraid of uh, getting out of sheltering in place compared to people who are more conservative, who express the attitude that we know this is a problem. We actually know people who have died, uh, but we think that together we can 
through trusting each other, we can get back to the way things were is a lot faster. I mean, just try, you know, more trying to sort of peel back the layers of the minds of the leftists. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's almost like, OK, I'm going to defer to your expertise. So you answer these questions then, because nobody seems to know uh, you, well, it, you it, and some right. of your experts are pretending to know. And so so tell me what, you know, opening up looks like and tell me what you will do if, if this uh, exigency occurs and tell me what you'll do if it, this contingency turns out to be the reality. Um, maybe that's the way to do it, just to force them to develop their own thought process rather than just uh, be uh, be left to, you know, virtue signal based on their fear. And they have, unfortunately, because they have a plan for everything. You know, we remember someone who ran for president who had a plan for everything. And those plans, is, to my mind, are pretty scary. It's a lot of command and control of people who are asymptomatic. Uh, it's micromanaging uh, people at work, uh, telling them what to eat, where to buy it. I mean, basically micromanaging the, the economy that we've shut down. Uh, and, and this is not unusual. At the turn of the century, the, the progressive movement felt that they had a solution to the uh, epidemic of cholera and um, typhoid uh, and staph infection in large cities. It was called eugenics. And their, their, their proposal was to weed out all the deplorables that were coming over to this country legally uh, because they couldn't be counted on to do the right thing for the rest of us. So it's the same uh, urge all over again. And um, I, I, that's one of the reasons I wrote the op-ed is to let people know that uh, there is this impulse that we need to be aware of, not just about other people, but ourselves in some cases. When um, and I'm not talking about just sort of rank and file people who have been, um, you know, I guess uh, brainwashed. I don't know how else to describe it by MSNBC or CNN, but people who know who uh, Cloward and Piven are. Do, do you think we yes. have at, at the sort of at the expert level, at the academic level, um, people seizing some people on the left seizing this opportunity to pursue something akin to the Cloward uh, Piven strategy of uh, expanding the welfare state to the point of destroying the American economy so as to usher in, you know, the glorious new world of the proletariat revolution and the Marxist state. I'm so delighted that you mentioned Cloward and Piven because I had just rereading um, their initial regulating the poor uh, for an article that I'm writing now, which basically says what uh, you just uh, you just stated that is that the uh, the goal of the of the progressives and public and this is probably one of the failings why we we blew the pandemic. The whole public health establishment is into woke. Basically, their their focus was on blaming um, white privilege for the public health crisis, and that the thing that we had to do to eliminate all the gun violence and the disease and uh, inequities was to eliminate white privilege. And that's the way that we solve this problem. So um, uh, I, I think that there is, uh, th there is an element, a very uh, uh, um, progressive element that looks that way. And if I can put a shameful plug in for my son, Zach Goldberg, who's written about this as well. I mean, he's his own research. He's a political scientist too, although I did want him to follow in my footsteps to become a a baseball player, or a better one <laughs> than I was. 
but shows that this radical movement has become much more, um, uh, uh, because of the Internet and everything else, mutually reinforcing. And they're driving a lot of this uh, debate. So um, I think that's, a, you know, I, I'm going to have to quote you in my, my article because it's an excellent point. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, when you think about it, when the whole, they want to replace the entire economy with, with the government. The government economy. economy. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. It's going to be yeah, fa- I, I, yeah, fascinating to see how that works. I don't know how you uh, yeah. how you keep a productive state uh, with uh, only a public sector. I, this is it's just really something to well, I, listen you know, to the the logic. I'm just thinking of government run hockey, government run baseball. Yeah. Government- <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the allocation of resources. Uh, boy, you don't want the yes, government. Well, you, the rationing. Yeah. By the way, that's the other thing. Is that it's interesting that the people that are sacrificed the most next to the uh, workers on the front line and the ER people and the doctors are people with chronic conditions that are not getting care. Uh, and then when push comes to shove, when they want to allocate. Uh, masks or ventilators, people like Zeke Emanuel say, oh, you're the, you're the type that we, we have to limit access. That we can't give you those things because you're not, your life isn't worth living. You're too sick. Government-run sports. That's going to be fun. Uh, yeah. uh, you're gonna, you're, everybody's going to be the Cleveland Browns, uh, so that should be fun to watch. <laughs> uh, 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 Dr. Robert Goldberg, <laughs> Vice President of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We should uh, continue funding the World Health Organization and the UN indefinitely, regardless of what they do. There's so much more valuable than uh, uh, than the money that we pay. It's a value add. It's a great return on investment. Is it? World Health Organization guidelines for sex education recommend that children's age zero to four be taught about masturbation and gender identity. There are standards for sexuality education in Europe, a framework for policymakers, educational health authorities and specialists. The name of the advisory advises that children be taught about pleasuring themselves, transgenderism before they've even fully learned to talk. Uh, in the age four to six bracket, educators are urged to, quote, give information about same sex relationships, help children develop respect for different norms regarding sexuality and guidelines, phases, if you will, to borrow a phrase. That's from the World Health Organization. Mission creep, just as uh, Centers for Disease Control here are opining on the same topic, uh, promulgating uh, guidelines about uh, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with, you know, disease control per the agency name. Uh, How about the UN? How tone deaf is this? And telling at the same time. Antonio Guterres, he's the uh, politician from Portugal, who's the secretary general of the United States now, has been since 2017. Op-ed in the New York Times this week, time to save the sick and rescue the planet. Is he talking about COVID-19 response? No. I'm proposing six climate positive actions for governments to consider once they go about building back their economies, societies, and communities, spend, uh, deliver new jobs and businesses through clean, clean green transition, 
where taxpayers money rescues businesses must be creating green jobs and sustainable, inclusive growth, not out, not bailing out outdated, polluting carbon insensitive industries. Bad news for you, oil industry. You're not coming back. The secretary general told us. Uh, shift great economies from gray to green public fund should invest in the future flow to projects that help the environment and climate and fossil fuel subsidies, uh, but not subsidies for green energy. Of course, uh, global financial system must take climate into account with respect to their, uh, future investments and so on and so forth. Never let a crisis go to waste, huh? At the WHO and the UN and we should fund them in perpetuity. And be the primary funder, at least in terms of plurality of resources. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. You need a mental health break from all this, and so do I. And I've got a good one for you. It's this new series called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, which is a documentary presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. And it's a series. So The Exodus is one of the films. The Moses Controversy, The Red Sea Miracle are the other two in this trilogy. Investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to the important question. Did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies I mentioned in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Again, watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. And thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do again so tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.